Take a seat, please. It's good to see everybody again. If you get your Bibles out, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. With a world that is rapidly changing, um, it is important that we, I believe, hear these words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. They are uh, particularly relevant, especially as we continue down the path that our country is going right now. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. We're only going to look at this verse this morning. Um, Let me read the whole section for you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are very strong words. And in many ways, they define the difference between a subject of your kingdom in a subject of the kingdom of Satan. These are hard words. And yet, Father, we strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to live these lives out for the sake of your glory. And so we come to you this morning as your children, but in desperate need that your Spirit speak to us. You know the individual circumstances that we all have carried and brought with us this morning. And you can speak through your spirit to each and every one of us. And so we ask and invite the Holy Spirit to come and to move with the freedom that he has to convict where conviction is needed, to encourage where encouragement is needed, to build up, to strengthen, to glorify you. Use me for those purposes Bring yourself glory this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about uh, this question, are we different? This is not, this will talk about some of the issues that went on last week, but this is not a political sermon by any stretch of imagination. But on Wednesday this past week, the House of Representatives approved President Biden's sweeping $1.9 trillion COVID package. It was a bipartisan vote. But on Friday morning, President Biden signed this bill into law with so many Americans that are in financial trouble. The question I had is, well, why didn't any Republicans vote for this third relief package? Now, there are a number of reasons. Just here are some. Number one is that, and this is disturbing, but it is what it is. It's a world we live in. Only 10%, did you know that, of the $1.9 trillion package goes to help American people where it is needed. Last year, uh, through the stimulus packages, schools received $68 billion. Did you know that? Does anyone know how much of the $68 billion schools have actually used up to this point? 
4 billion. And they've added more money to be given to the schools in this third package. Well, why? It's just frivolous spending. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell said that this relief package is nothing more than a, a parade of left-wing pet projects that they are ramming through during a pandemic. But my question is, well, what are these left-wing pet projects? Well, here's one of them. It has nothing to do with the pandemic or helping Americans who are struggling financially during this time. But in 1980, you may recall this, the Hyde Amendment took effect. It is a legislative provision barring the use of federal funds to pay for unnecessary abortions. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of this amendment, which has a long history of bipartisan support. It also provides a critical protection for the freedom of conscience of Americans. In other words, I don't want my federal funds and my money to go pay for abortions if I don't believe in abortions. This is something that even former President Obama recognized. It is included in President Biden's relief package, a repeal of the Hyde Amendment. And now federal funds will be used to pay for abortions. Also included in the stimulus package is another $50 million for Title X. This is an attempt to replace the money lost by Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider under former President Trump's term. The good news is a coalition of 19 states already have filed a joint motion to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to stop the Biden administration from using Title X to fund abortion clinics. This has all happened last week. And since he has taken office, President Biden has also repealed the Mexico City policy. Do you know what that is? It's a, a policy that requires overseas organizations that are receiving aid from the United States not to promote abortion. Penny Nance is the head of the National Pro-Life Activist Organization Concerned Women for America. She has estimated that approximately 100 million would be shifted to destroy life abroad as a result of repealing the Mexico City policy. Now, this is not a critique of President Biden. He made his intentions clear during the 2020 presidential campaign. In 13 debates, Biden made his stance on abortion clear. He is clearly what? Pro-choice. In multiple campaign ads, he stated his position on abortion. He even held a planned parenthood town hall. On July 6, 2019, the New York Times ran the headline, Joe Biden denounces Hyde Amendment, reversing his position. And you might recall from last year's sermon that the Democratic Party platform plainly states, we will repeal the Hyde Amendment and protect and codify Roe versus Wade. Now, despite this, when the details of his stimulus package were made known, there was shock. And this is the, the point I'm getting to. President Biden has done what he says he's going to do. In that regard, it's a good thing. He's kept his word, right? I don't like it, but he's kept his word. But there was shock among some in the evangelical community. And this is where my focus and my critique begins. In an article entitled, Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden Say They Feel Used and Betrayed by President Biden on Abortion by Michael Grabowski, this is what he wrote. In a statement posted on the Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden website, the evangelical leaders and scholars wrote, as pro-life leaders in the evangelical community, we publicly supported President Biden's candidacy with the understanding that there would be engagement with us on the issue of abortion 
particularly the Hyde Amendment, the statement explains. The Biden team wanted to talk to us during the campaign to gain our support, and we gave it on the condition there would be active dialogue and common ground solutions on the issue of abortion. There has been no dialogue since the campaign. They went on to say they feel used and betrayed and have no intention of simply watching these kinds of efforts happen from the sidelines. Many evangelicals and Catholics took risks to support Biden publicly. President Biden and Democrats need to honor their courage. We call on President Biden to honor his commitment to us and immediately demand that the House of Representatives apply the Hyde Amendment or language to the American Relief Package. If this is not done, it will raise the question of whether or not we are still welcome in the Democratic Party. Let me answer that question for them right now. As I did last week, no, you're not. They already said this. You can't be pro-life and Democrat. It's just, it's not possible. It just is, well, I need to be quiet here. I'm going to let other people, what they said, speak for me. Now, some of the people that signed this letter include Fuller Seminary President Emeritus Richard Mao, and we'll get to him in a minute. The Evangelicals for Social Action President Emeritus Ronald Sider. I mentioned him last, a couple months ago when I was going over, last year in the fall, in the Kingdom Voting Series. And actually, Billy Graham's granddaughter, Jer- how do you say his name, Jerusha Duford. And I said, you may recall from last year's sermon series entitled Kingdom Voting, I mentioned in October that this group released a statement urging pro-life evangelicals to vote for Biden despite the Democratic Party's view on abortion. Do you remember what Pete Buttigieg said when he was asked this question, can he be pro-life and Democrat? Do you remember what I told you? And I gave him credit for this. He says, no, you can't. <laughs> it's just not possible. The actress Patricia Heaton joined in that and said, yeah, you can't be pro-life and democratic. Democratic Party, support the Democratic Party. Um, Ron Sider, the long-time evangelical figure and advocate for biblical solutions to social and economic injustices, also edited a book last year. Remember I, I went over this briefly? The Spiritual Danger of Donald Trump in which 30 evangelical Christians talked about why they opposed the former president. Now let's talk about Richard Mao, the, the president emeritus of Fuller Seminary. He wrote an opinion column published by the Christian Post touting the pro-life evangelical coalition statement of support of Biden. And a key point in the argument was that while Biden was pro-choice, now catch this, his positions on other issues such as racial reconciliation, health care reform, immigration, and global warming, and other issues, made his platform more consistent with biblical values. Now, Tony Perkins, president of the Christian Conservative Advocacy Organization Family Research Council, in response last week, said this about these pro-life evangelicals for Biden. Once they ate of the fruit of the Biden campaign was offering, the damage was done. A reference to what? Eve eating the fruit in the Garden of Eden. He goes on to say, the Biden team got what they wanted in 2020. Cover for their unbiblical, anti-faith position on abortion. They were looking for evangelical Christians to justify their position. Now, 
this past week in another article entitled How Utterly Absurd So-Called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden Feel Betrayed and Used. This was written by the opinion editor, opinion columnist Michael Brown. This is what he wrote. To be totally candid, it was hard for me to believe the headline was real. Pro-life evangelicals for Biden, we feel used and betrayed. Seriously? They feel used and betrayed because the pro-abortion president they helped put in office did exactly what he said he would do. They feel used and betrayed because he carried out his campaign promises. They feel used and betrayed because he stayed true to the Democratic platform. I could understand feeling embarrassed and ashamed and humiliated at their extreme naivete, but used and betrayed? Joe Biden made it absolutely clear that he was running as a pro-abortion president, and his running mate, Kamala Harris, was even more extreme in her positions. Yet somehow, these evangelicals, some of them highly quality Christian leaders, of which I question that statement, actually believe that Biden would moderate his position if he was elected? Talk about being self-deceived. Talk about being used and then spit out. And talk about being, and listen to me, complicit in deepening America's blood guilt. Please, this is willful ignorance. He said what I wanted to say. So I, you can't yell at me, I'm just quoting this guy. So what I really appreciate is he went on and ended his article with a call to repentance from these so-called pro-life evangelicals for Biden. At this point, I would encourage you to, number one, ask God's forgiveness for helping empower this radical pro-abortion agenda. Amen to that. Reach out to pro-Trump evangelicals and Catholics to rebuild bridges and find common ground. And yes, the rebuilding goes both ways. Humility is required from all of us. And thirdly, as one, unite in transcending the political parties and once for all, turn this nation to embrace the sanctity of life. Amen. A man with some courage and character, saying what needs to be said. Okay, you may want to throw in there, present the gospel to some of these people, because I don't know if they would even be saved. Their behavior is not showing that, is it? And so the very next day, here's the thing, the drama continued. In an article entitled, Prominent Evangelical Scholar Wouldn't Publicly Support Biden If Election Were Today, this is what Richard Mao, the president emeritus of Fuller Seminary, said. He would vote for Biden again if the 2020 presidential election were held today, but he would not make his support public. Again, present the gospel to this man, as I say to you. Now, here's his reasoning. This is, gets a bit better. And you may be offended in, in hearing this, but we need to hear it. Mao indicated that while he disagrees with Biden's position on abortion... There are other areas where he has found common ground with the new administration, specifically on the issues of global warming and immigration, and that it was necessary to provide reassurance to the many younger evangelicals who are not happy about, here it is, the way in which their parents and grandparents, that's you and me, have endorsed and defended the Trump administration. We don't want to lose them to evangelicalism because of what is perceived as a mean-spirited, highly partisan commitment on the part of the older generation. So you are mean-spirited, people. This is what he's saying. And again, I say, present the gospel to this man. 
mean-spirited, highly partisan commitment on the part of the older generation of evangelicals who voted 81% in the president's election before this last one from Mr. Trump. Um, now here's my words. I want you to understand what this man is saying. He and they willfully sacrificed biblical truth so as not to offend a younger generation. I say to them, what is God more concerned about? A human life or global warming? They're Christians, they're scholars. What's gonna happen to this, the earth? Couple things, either it's gonna be recreated or it's gonna be replaced. Those are the two theories. What's eternal? This planet or the soul of an individual? I don't know what Bible they're reading, it's not the one I have. Another question is, what does God value more? A human life or a humane immigration policy? This is such a pathetically weak argument. And it was generous to call these people Christian leaders. That's not leadership, folks. That's abandoning leadership, that's cowardice, okay? And I would advise you, you don't follow people like that. You cannot sacrifice biblical truth just to find common ground. That's, the world sacrifices truth to find common ground. That's the way of the world, right? Ironically, this article concluded with a discussion that this reporter had with Richard Mao about the Equality Act. I didn't share this last week for the sake of time, but this Professor Evans Richard Mao expressed concern about the president's support for another major legislative initiative in the Equality Act. And this is, this is the way he says here. The Equality Act threatens the rights of Christian institutions to preserve commitments to traditional biblical teaching regarding sexuality without being penalized in terms of federal grants, federal loans for students in jeopardy. A lot of Christian colleges and universities are well over 50% dependent in their tuition income on students getting federal loans. And that making the sexuality issue, in other words, you're a biological male, but you want to be called a female, you have to recognize that, the whole gender identity thing and so on. Accepting the transgender and homosexual and uh, conservative Christian organization that speaks against that, making the sexuality issue an eligibility requirement for receiving students with federal loans would deal a huge blow to faith-based schools. The Equality Act allows the government to discriminate and to take away any funding to Christian schools, faith-based organizations, uh, seminaries, and so on. So in other words, Richard Mao and others voted a man in office who will most likely, or very likely could, send him to the unemployment line. And to that, I say, you reap what you sow. That's how God, he put that in the Bible for a reason, so we would learn. I hate to see that happen, I hope it doesn't, hope the quadrac fails, but that's what will most likely happen if it goes through. Now, the series of events that unfolded last week 
in regards to this third stimulus package, so they provided a useful introduction for me this morning. If there is one overarching theme Jesus is making in his Sermon on the Mount, it's that the subjects of his kingdoms are to be different from the world. We went over the Beatitudes. Remember the, the, you probably don't remember the, the series title for that sermon series, and it was different. We're continuing it with his teaching in chapter five, and it's counterculture. But that's the whole idea. We're to be different. Different from the world. You guys got that point, right? Can I get an amen for the congregation so you're awake? Okay, now, pro-life evangelicals for Biden, and as Michael Brown said, apart from being an oxymoronic name, it's just another example of the church being like what? The world. Sacrificing truth and believing now a lie. You see, the Biden team met with these people, these pro-life evangelicals for Biden, and lied to them to get the vote and to get someone out there saying that you could be pro-life and vote for Biden. I was supposed to have a meeting this week with them, but do you really think that they're gonna change what they've already put in place? Well, no, they can't, because guess what? The bill already passed. Now, there are other words you could use other than naive and gullible, and if I'd say them, I'd get in trouble, but it just, you shake your head in disbelief. How could you be so blind? How could you be so naive? Be what? Innocent as a dove, but wise as a serpent. They certainly didn't display any wisdom then. Now, it will perhaps help you, if you to really grasp this truth of being different if you think of Jesus' sermon as a contrast between the best that humanity can offer God and then God's standards. Because see, to a Jew, the best humanity could offer was the scribes and Pharisees. They were the most legalistic, ritualistic, religious people on earth. And what did Jesus say to them? That your righteousness must what? Exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's Matthew 5, 20. Neither the Pharisees couldn't meet the standards for his kingdom because their standards were inadequate. For example, they thought it, wasn't, it was enough to, to not to kill. Don't kill. What does Jesus say? You can't be angry. And if you're angry, it's as if you actually committed the act of murder. They thought it was enough not to commit adultery, but Jesus says you shouldn't even think about committing adultery. They thought it was all right when they got a divorce if they took care of all the legal paperwork. But what does Jesus say? You shouldn't even be having these unbiblical divorces. They thought it was enough that they kept certain vows. But Jesus says you shouldn't even need to make vows because your word is your bond. They thought it was enough that they gave back an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But what does he say? We don't retaliate. Don't retaliate at all. Now the key to this kingdom lifestyle that Jesus is, is presenting is that you can't live this way. We know that, right? 
unless you are given help. You are infused with divine power. Everyone turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 real quick. Ephesians chapter 3. Starting in verse 14. The lifestyle that he is calling us to live is unattainable in human effort. So we need help. This, is what, this was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You may recall from last year again that Paul had just described the, the specifications of a, of a Christian in chapters 1 through 3. This is who you are in Christ and all that God's given you. He gives you that information before he tells you to do anything, before he tells you how to live your life in chapters 4 through 6. The reason is they were incapable of living by God's standards because they lacked the ability and the desire to do so. And so Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is saying to his audience, the religious system that you've grown up in is substandard, and until you come to me for power, you'll never be able to meet my countercultural standards. Because kingdom character is absolutely unique. You see, it's unlike the character shown by these pro-life evangelicals for Biden. We're to be unique, different. And if the one overarching theme that runs throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that God's children are to be different, then make no mistake, folks, that the one overarching distinctive characteristic of a subject of his kingdom is love. Paul put it this way. I don't know if you ever thought of it, but get this through your mind, myself as well. You are given God's power to love. Look at that, verse 16 or 17. You're strengthened with power, verse 16, you see that? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So because I have that ability or the power, I now have the desire to surrender every area of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So he can come and dwell, settle down in every area of my life. I give it to him. He's my Lord. That's what that means. What happens next? I have the power. He's my Lord that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. You see, you are given his power for what? To love. You are given his power to love. You're not given his power to speak in tongues. It may happen, you're not given his power necessarily to, to raise the dead to do the miraculous. It's, it can be used for that, but you are given his power to love. So let's begin this morning as usual, and we're going to look at this. This is it. This principle of the law of Moses, verse 43, Matthew 5, 43. And I told you this was a jaw-dropping sermon. Jesus is just really assaulting the teaching of his day, and he's assaulting the Pharisees' inadequate religious system, the false Judaism that they had taught the people. 
And he's assaulting them on the basis of the best and highest of things, and that is love. In short, he says, your supposed commitment to love your neighbor is inadequate. And more than anything else, folks, about this characteristic of love, it's a way you think, okay? It's, it starts here. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What did the Old Testament really teach about loving your neighbor? That's what we'll look at this morning. Well, Deuteronomy 6, 5 said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance, we talked about that last week, nor bear any grudges against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now you may recall from the New Testament that Jesus combined these two verses in answering the question asked by the lawyer, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment but the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the key. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. That's Matthew 22, 35 through 40. So on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. You see, you cannot love God and not love your neighbor. These two verses are intricately connected. But you have a choice. So you can keep all the law and all the prophets one by one, or you can do what? Love God and love your neighbors, and that is the fulfillment of the law. Obeying these two commands fulfills the entirety of the law. And so we see love really being the key characteristic, the key part, or the key ingredient, if you want to think of it that way, to living the Christian life. It satisfies everything. This is exactly what Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor, guess what? Has fulfilled the law. For this, and he goes on to, labor, to list all these different types of, of laws. You should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, now watch this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what the Old Testament said. Now everyone turn your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 22. This will help us understand how the Old Testament defined the term neighbor. By the way, the word love that we're talking about in Matthew 5.43, of course, is the Greek word agape. There are basically three types of love. There is God's love, unconditional love, agape. There is filial love, brotherly love, and there's eros, or erotic love, sexual love. So agape love is what we're talking about here. And in Deuteronomy 22.1-4, it defines, kind of from the Old Testament perspective, just who is a neighbor. Sorry, in verse 1, you shall not, not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, 
You shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do this same with his donkey, or with his garment, or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way, ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. So if you, someone you know has an animal that gets loose, immediately come to assist to return the animal. If you find a stray animal and you don't know who, who's the owner, what do you do? Take care of it until the person comes to retrieve it. But it's not just limited to livestock. When somebody loses anything, you don't own it because you found it. It's no finder's keepers, right? But you just keep it until they come to get it. So it's what we call the general principle of lost and found, right? So if his livestock falls down, you go and help him. Because these verses just really highlight two points. Meeting your neighbor's need and then helping to find your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? It's people you know and people you, you don't know. And here's another example from the Old Testament that further defines the term neighbor. Just listen to this, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now, the same principle as Deuteronomy 22, right? But here Moses includes the term what for neighbor? Your enemy. So who's your neighbor? Those you know. Those you don't know. And take a big, deep breath. Your enemy. That's the Old Testament term for neighbor. So it's very wide-ranging, it's inclusive, and basically it's anybody that has a need. Now, King David further developed this idea in Psalm 7, verses 3 through 5. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Do you see the point? If I've sinned against by being evil to a friend, or if I've sinned by being evil to the one who was my enemy, then judge me accordingly. Let them take my life. Now, obviously, we would think, and common sense would say, it's wrong to be evil towards those who are considered to be our friends. But the Old Testament says it's wrong to be evil towards those who are considered to be our enemies. See, the Old Testament never justifies hating an enemy because God's standards never change. The term neighbor is big enough to include whoever happens to have a need. Now, there's perhaps no greater example in the Old Testament of loving your enemies than King David. Folks, a little heads up here, this is why he was called a man after God's own heart. When David is anointed to be king by Samuel, I am sure that he had no idea of the pain that would follow. After defeating Goliath, and if you recall what happened to David, he rapidly ascended in Saul's army and in Saul's government. 
I'm sure that he saw his rapid ascension a sign of blessing from God that he would soon become king. But we know things didn't go according to David's plan. Saul became jealous of David and sought to take his life, driving David into the wilderness where he hunted David for anywhere between 11 to 14 years. Scriptures tell us that he was on one side of a a mountain or a hill and Saul was on the other side pursuing him. That's how he lived. Think about that. For 11 to 14 years. He literally hunted him. During that time, God was removing crutches from David's life as well. It's a hard time. He lost his dignity, his security, his liberty, and property. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Does it? I just talked about that last week. Those are our rights guaranteed by us in our Constitution. David's were taken away. David also lost his wife, who was the daughter of Saul. He lost his mentor, Samuel, who died pretty soon after David's persecution began. And he lost his best friend, Jonathan, who was Saul's son. So in order to find relief, the scriptures tell us in the story of David that David would join, he joined his enemy, the Philistines. And both times his decision to join the enemy led to humiliating consequences. Can we talk about a bad decade? Yeah, that was David. Now everyone turn to 1 Samuel 24. And the only way I can explain this is that because David had the Spirit of God, when he was anointed, the Spirit of God came upon him. This is the only way I can explain David's behavior in 1 Samuel 24 and on. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. So despite all this pain that I just mentioned David is going through, because of his enemy Saul, we find three examples of why David was described by God as a man after God's own heart. First one of Samuel, 1 Samuel 24. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on, that, on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is a day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul rose, left the cave, and went on his way. David did not return evil for evil to his enemy. Instead, he had pity on his enemy. He spared Saul's life. So David left vengeance in the hands of the Lord. And look at verse 12. And speaking to Saul, 
After this, it says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. I mean, he's going through a lot, folks. And this is his response. And is this how you would respond? Here's another example. Chapter 26. Sorry, in verse 1 through 3 and then 6 through 11. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding in the hill at Hachalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. So Saul has been told, I could have taken your life and I haven't. Does he learn from this? No. Probably driven to retaliate, by the way. Verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, Job's, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and Saul, the 3,000 men. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God's delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. So David, you don't have to take him now, like in the, in the cave. Let me do it for you. I believe in a sovereign God. It's the second time. He's put your enemy into your hand. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Once again, David is merciful to his enemy and leaves room for the wrath of the Lord. See how this ties into last week's sermon, by the way? And finally, when Saul and Jonathan die in battle... What was David's reaction? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Verses 11 to 13. Word is brought to David that Saul and Jonathan have died in battle. It says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Mourning and weeping and fasting for your enemy? That does not make sense, does it? But in the economy of God, it makes perfect sense. And again, I say to you, the only way that this is possible is because David had the Holy Spirit within him. Because the Holy Spirit was only given to a very few back in the Old Testament. It is given to who in the New Testament? All of God's children. It's freely given. So we are exactly like David. And he was hunted 
for anywhere between 11 to 14 years. We're going to find that this was just David's practice. Don't go to Psalm chapter 35. Psalm chapter 35. Turning verses 12 through 16. It says, They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. My prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. David's enemies repaid his kindness with what? Evil. And folks, maybe you've, you've been kind, and, and in return, you've something unkind or, or mean has happened in return for your kindness. It hurts, doesn't it? Even though David was good to them, they were mean to him. But when evil fell upon them, what did he do? See, his heart broke, and he mourned over them. And again, I say to you, the only way that's possible is in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, David obviously was strengthened with power, right? The Holy Spirit. And he made the Spirit, or God, Lord over every area of his life. And then, then through him, he was able to love. And by the way, the prayer in Ephesians 3 is that you what? That you may comprehend that which is, surpasses knowledge. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, the love of God. This is really what Paul's saying there. But you understand that. Which means then you're going to do things that don't make sense. Someone evil to you, you repay them with kindness. The world doesn't understand that. But I'm telling you, it, that is the distinctive characteristic, the reason why you're given power is to love, and specifically to love your enemies. But, I'll go back to my other point. We don't think that way, do we? And I'm telling you, you have to start to think that way. It was because I had preached on this and studied this, I was able to advise my wife, no, they're treating this office, you know, person in your office this way, it's me. No, you go the other way. It's just because it's the way I thought, because I've studied this, I've preached this. But it's a different way of thinking. It's a renewed mind. And you can do that. Let me give you one more example from the life of David. David's son Absalom, he attempted a coup. You remember that? And David is fleeing for his life. And on his way, this is what happens in 2 Samuel 16. Go back there, please. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 13. Verses 5 through 13. It's obvious then that, and next week we'll get into what you can do to help you think this way and help you to live out this love and to love your enemies, there's a transformation that takes place within you. 
It begins with the way you think. 2 Timothy 16, verse 5. When David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. So David is basically with his people, fleeing for his life because Absalom's trying to take his life, and he's fleeing with his entourage to safety. And Shimei, the son of Gera, who is a descendant of Saul, came out cursing, continually at him. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Now these mighty men, by the way, were mighty. Do you remember these stories about these men? They could kill like 400 men by themselves. They were so fierce that the scriptures say that their hands like froze to the sword. They, they were paralyzed because they had exhausted themselves, but they were just... You know, they, would, they could go down into a, a pit on a snowy day and to beat a lion. That's how powerful they were. They were mighty men of David. Thus, Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. You kind of want a friend like that, don't you? But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? So in other words, what spirit is Abishai, the son of Zariah, demonstrating? A spirit of retaliation. See that? We've been wronged. Thrones are thrown at, at, stones are thrown at us. I'm retaliate. I'll justify it, saying, you're the Lord's anointed, you're the king, I can kill for you. But David says, what have I to do with you? Then David, verse 11, said to Abishai and to his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse. The Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So a descendant of Saul's is insulting David. And by the way, we do see in Shimei the evil and vengeful retaliatory heart, don't we? He called David a man of bloodshed. What do you mean by that? Because that would have hurt David on many levels. Well, remember that he's saying that the reason why Absalom has turned against you, David, is because you dethroned Saul, which he didn't do that. Saul died in battle. So Shimei is believing a lie, or he's concocted that, that false idea in his mind. Second, David was a man who had spilled blood. He was a man of war. Because that, God would not allow David to do what? Build the temple. So these insults are calculated, they're derogatory, and they're hurtful. And naturally, David's men are tired of taking insults, and they want to take Shimei's life. I mean, you think about it, in that situation, a man can only take so much, right? But David's response reveals his heart. Leave him alone. 
Perhaps God will reward me for being kind to my enemy. Everyone turn your Bibles back to Matthew 5. I'm going to show you something. Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12. We're nearing the end of the sermon here, so just hang on. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. David's saying, perhaps God will reward me for being kind to my enemy. And that is the right response. Now, does that sound familiar? It should, because let's read Matthew 5, 11 through 12. This was the different series that we did last year before we started this counterculture series. Blessed are you when people what? Insult and persecute you. There we go, perfect example of that. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Well, why are you rewarded in heaven? And why is it great? Because you've taken the insult and the persecution and have not what? Retaliated. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you could put David in that category of a prophet. So David understood that if I... It's, it's, it's a good position to be in where my enemy is persecuting me or insulting me because it's an opportunity for me to gain rewards in heaven by what? Responding in love to my enemy. Folks, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And if you're a descendant or a child of God, his offspring are to be known by their love for one another, Right? John 13, 35. And of course, who is one another? Well, look at Matthew 5, 44, and 46, and 47. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is how we show we are different from the world. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You're not going to be different if you just sprinkle a little Christian activity on your human life. What makes you different than anybody else and shows you belong in his kingdom? It's that you love your enemies. You see that? It's not I love my wife. I frustrate her. I annoy her, I hurt her, and she loves me, but she's not getting rewarded for that. I return love to her, but an enemy, if I love them, that's different. The world watches that and sees that. Because you see, the real test of our Christian character, it's not how we treat our friends, it's how we treat our enemies, and that's how we're different. We close with the story of Jacob the Savior. It's, it's just a fitting story. Uh, Mitsue Fuchida. Apologize, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Commander of the Japanese Air Force, he led the squadron of 600 or 860 planes that attacked Pearl Harbor. American bomber Jacob de Shazer was eager to strike back, and the following April 18th, he flew his B-25 bomber, the bat out of hell, on a dangerous raid over Japan. I think that may have been the Doolittle raid, maybe referring to there. 
After dropping his bombs on Nagoya, DeShazer lost his way in heavy fog and ejected as his plane ran out of fuel. He was taken prisoner, tortured by the Japanese, and threatened with imminent death. For almost two years, DeShazer suffered hunger, cold, and dysentery. And in May of 1944, he was given a Bible. You can keep it for three weeks, said the guard, and DeShazer grabbed it, clutched it to his chest, and started reading in Genesis. Scarcely sleeping, he read the Bible through several times, memorizing key passages. On June 8th, after reading to, to Romans 10.9, Jacob prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. Immediately, Matthew 5.44 became a critical text for DeShazer as he determined to treat his Japanese guards differently. These were guards that were keeping him cold, sick, and in dysentery. His hostility towards them evaporated, and every morning he greeted them warmly. He prayed for them and sought to witness to them. He noticed their attitude toward him also changed, and they would often slip him food or supplies. After the war, DeShazia returned to, Jap to Japan as a missionary. Copies of his testimony, I was a prisoner of the Japanese, flooded the country, and thousands wanted to see the man who could love and forgive his enemies. DeShazer settled down to establish a church in Nagoya, the city he had bombed. One man in particular, deeply affected by DeShazer's testimony, was led to Christ by Glenn Wagner of the Pocket Testament League. Shortly afterward, the man paid a visit to Jacob DeShazer at his home, and the two became dear friends and brothers. It was Mitsuo Fuchida who had led the Pearl Harbor attacks. As DeShazer served as a missionary in Japan, Fuchida became a powerful evangelist, preaching throughout Japan and around the world. So yeah, it's incredible witness, and there's power in that witness when we love, particularly love our enemies. And so I just thought this was a very appropriate, I want you to strive this week just to love in every situation. Keep in the forefront of your mind to respond in love, to respond in love. Train your mind to think differently. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. A powerful message indeed. A timely message, I believe. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, may we live like you require the subjects of your kingdom to live, Jesus. To love, to love generously, to love our enemies. Nothing else more needs to be said. And all God's people said, Amen. We'll just conclude the service this morning. Have a great Sunday and go out loving. Amen. Have a good day.